And on this edition of the Eric J. Richards Podcast, we sit down and talk with stand-up comedian Mona and get her thoughts and opinions about how comedy is going life after Corona. That and much more here on the Eric J. Richards Podcast. The guy had no idea what movie I was referencing. He didn't even know what Blazing Saddles was. And after that, I was like, all right, we can't be friends. Go get her, Ray. And we know where that's from, right? That's from uh, the Flintstones movie with Holly Berry and John Goodman. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am Eric J. Richards, and welcome to the Eric J. Richards podcast. Today, in this episode, we will be discussing comedy and a lot of other various subjects with our next very talented uh, comic. She has performed all over the country, including uh, Comedy Central Dubai. So uh, please let me introduce you to the very funny Mona. Hi. Thank you. Well, first yeah. of all, Mona, uh, thank you for joining me. And, and, and we've known each other for a while. And, you know, you're just one of the funniest comics out there in my opinion um so i just I had i had to when i was doing my show i had to pick up the phone and and uh call you were one of the first people i called i appreciate you yeah thank you and for all the all the listeners i'm, I'm grateful to be included in this podcast you know you're you're cool people and you've always been very loving and supportive in the comedy scene so thank you for all your contribution well, I mean, you know, you've always, I've always thought that you, you've had tons and tons of uh, talent and, you know, it's just all a matter of time to, uh, you know, people really see how great and funny you are. So I, and hopefully this uh, platform will help showcase that. Thank you. Now, I also wanted to, uh, it's been a while since we've, we've talked and everything. Um, I think the last time we've actually spoken was was it uh the last killer comedy show in was it march of 2017 no 2014 2014 so it's been a while wow 2014 yeah holy cannoli i know almost 10 years yeah so yeah it's been a while yeah and uh yeah it's so i was actually thinking about doing a uh 10-year killer comedy show at some point down this down, down the road this year um okay so I, I i may you know of course if i do it you're absolutely one of the top people i'm going to ask uh you know of course i'll do it nicely you know getting my hands and knees and you know kissing your ring and, ah, your feet and, <laughs> and you know try to get a petitions to start started about having a statue named after you or something Hey man, from your from your mouth, you said it. You called it right here. Statue. Imagine me with a statue. Jeez. <laughs> I well, you know, it'd be it'd be one of the greatest statues ever. Well, I shouldn't say great. <laughs> I, I should I shouldn't say great after you know the word great has pretty much been uh, diminished in the past you know, few years. <laughs> it's so great. It's huge. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's true. But uh, so what have you been doing since the last time we've, I mean, your stock has gone up as I, I you know, I follow and I've been following you on uh, social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, 
Uh, and you're all over the social media landscape. You actually have a, a team of people working uh, with you now, uh, trying to help build the Mona brand, correct? Yeah. So, so it, you know, since 2014, a lot really has transpired. I went through one team and now I'm assembling another one for basically an overall rebranding of, of everything that I do because I do, I do and have done so much with, with comedy just being the common denominator that I, I would say I'm, I'm more than just a stand-up comic. I'm kind of oddly enough why stand-up comedy is invented. So the, this, you know, the things that I've been doing internationally and locally as well as teaching. So that's probably one of the things that I've been doing that I don't really talk about on social media. I actually, in general, I'm very quiet relative to my peers on social media. I found it to be, um, I, I, I walk a fine line with social media so that I'm not actually taking out my emotional wellness out to the public. I try, I try to keep my social media platforms professional. Mm-hmm. And so if, ever, if I'm ever going through something personal that I don't know if I'd want to relive in 10 years, I, I kind of keep it off social media. So the one thing that I have been doing that I haven't been letting people know underground is I've been teaching comedy and I've been teaching comedy since 2010. Actually, yeah, since 2010, 2011, I've been teaching it uh, for young kids, for middle-aged, and then for adults and for corporate. Uh, the way I teach stand-up and the purpose of it is really so much more exciting than than most people would imagine. Just teaching comedy for like team building and team leadership as well as the overall business acumen and the business component to young people. Uh, it's really a lot of fun. So that's some of the stuff that I've been working on most recently while allowing my comedy career to kind of just go where it's supposed to go. I, I've taken my hands off the wheel on that one. I've, I've been very grateful. I've hit a lot of huge mile marks since 2014. Huge. And to be able to look back and be like, wow, so I accomplished those things, but it doesn't not, for example, you know, doing Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall is, is a milestone in any performer's life, you know, being able to get to Carnegie Hall. Well, I'm, I was blessed. I was able to do it in 2016, having only done comedy six, seven years. So it's a, it's a beautiful gift, but at the same time, it kind of put me in a position where I'm now having to, con- to really shape and contribute to how comedy should look like or can look like. Versus it being something I'm doing, hoping I'm going to get my big break because I, you know, Carnegie Hall is kind of a big break. That's, but you know, Comedy Central, it, it, it global. So I'm on some of these airlines with my performance. So that is, a, those are big breaks that they don't let you know about within the kind of the smaller comedy circle where everyone's just waiting to get tapped by Hollywood. So mm-hmm. that's what I've been up to. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the sky is limited. I mean, you've done all this great stuff, uh, you know, as I've mentioned before, and you know, it's it's just going to it's continuously and will continue to to skyrocket. In my opinion, I mean, look, I've I've been doing comedy for a long time, and you know, I've seen great talent, and like I said before, you are uh, without a shadow of a doubt one of the the uh, great great talents out there now. Thank you. Uh, speaking of the like, talents out there, um, what have you been doing in times of COVID? I, a lot of comics that I've spoken to um, have uh, done the virtual shows. Um, some like it, some don't. I, you know, I'd be interested to hear um, your take. 
Oh, uh, yeah. Right. You know, right off the jump, as soon as as soon as things were starting to slow down, I was doing some Zoom stuff. I think more, pretty much before most people were doing it. And then um, I just didn't. I was no longer interested in it. And I also really liked teaching comedy, so I was either doing shows or teaching them. And then during the day, I started uh, I started working in a holistic healing center and started working more in the the spiritual realm of um, you know I was became an assistant shaman for ayahuasca ceremonies and all. The, the, so my my life took on a, a, a deep dive into other modes of healing, which allowed me to reflect more fully on why I even do stand up and my relationship to stand up and teaching stand up and performing was really about healing and providing people both the laughter they need to release their frustration or their fear of, of other, but also teaching them, giving them the microphone while I'm also, you know, teaching them how to face their fears at all. So I've, I've taken a different journey, I think relative to my peers, my peers, it seems as if they're just excited to get, you know, back into stand up, and and also while COVID, I did in the summer, I I was producing a show again at the Comedy Bowl, the bowling alley, you know, with the, with the, the masks and sanitizing the microphones, and we had a we had a blast. It was so much great comedy going on. We I worked with uh, I kind of co-produced a show with B Cole called the Comedy Gym, and that was really teaching folks not just how to be a comic in terms of like an open mic setting, but also all the other components of performing stand-up, like the production side. So I'm really good at teaching the production angle as well of, of comedy, how, how to host a good show. I, I just, I feel like there's so much more available uh, than just doing the jokes. I like the teaching of it. I like the hosting of it. I like um, working with young comedians to teach them how to produce a good show. What goes into it? What's what's the layout need to look like for it to be well done? What's the marketing? So I think I've had my fingers in so many other things other than just doing jokes on in front of other people. Because even that, when I was before COVID, wasn't a hundred percent profitable anyway. I've always been doing something else. So I just continued along that route, adding in this the shamanic overall holistic healing component too. Uh, now, now you said you started teaching in 2010. Um, yeah. But what made you, what made you want to get into teaching comedy? Um, I was working in a commercial real estate firm, the top, CBRE, it's the top one on the planet. And I was in their marketing department. And one of the things that they had, they had this relationship with Finkel Academy over on the Southwest side of Chicago and uh, where it was young men read or real men read. So many of the men, male brokers would go into this school that's predominantly uh, Latino, Latino X and um, African-American kids and was reading to them. And just so they could see what a strong, powerful man looks like. Well, then they said they can do real women read and I want to do it. So as I, I uh, joined in and when I got back, I, I was so inspired by the experience because I I realized I was reading to the kids, but really wanting to make them laugh. And I wanted to engage with them. Like these kids are awesome. There's so much kids like second graders, third graders, fourth graders are so cool to hang out with because they don't have all the divorces and mortgages that yo missed yoga classes. They, they, they're just nice. They're yeah. They might call you chubby or whatever, but or they're just really cool to engage with. So I came back to my, to the firm and I said, listen, I have an idea. Why don't, I teach a comedy and, and then what we'll do is I'll teach comedy to the kids and we'll have a show 
the marketing department where I was working, I was the proposal writer within the marketing department. What we can do is we can help produce their show. So they teach the kids comedy. Then we put out a big finale, like a recital. And the, the organization, CBRE, loved the idea. And so every week I would go teach these kids comedy in their, basically their writing class. And so many amazing things transpired where, for example, we were dealing with kids with autism, special needs. They were leaning more into my comedy class than they were in anything else. They were really resonating with it. Um, there was kids that had speech impediment. There were a variety of variables. You know, they had a lot of trauma at home. And what we were doing by playing with comedy and stand-up, they were learning self-expression. They were learning healthy modes of imagination, healthy modes of conflict and conflict resolution. So, so inspired by that and that situation. I'm like, yo, that's, it feels like that's my calling. And oddly enough, very shortly thereafter, the performance, the, the firm asked, gave, kind of gave me an ultimatum, a weird ultimatum to leave. But I knew it was the universe saying, okay, you found your thing now. It's time. So by 2011, 2012, I was a limo driver during the day and then doing comedy at night, but still maintaining these comedy workshops. And it just seems as if now it, that that's not only is that my calling, but I've already this year established my own comedy school and the bricks and mortar is going to be the bowling alley, but, you know, having kids have somewhere to learn stand up and perform and really learn the, you know, they have classes for improv, but improv is one thing. Improv teaches you a lot. And one of the cool things about improv is it teaches you relationship to yes. And, and while that's awesome, there's also a really powerful component around no and stand up will teach, you no, like what jokes will work and what jokes won't. No matter how hard you think it's going to work, the audience is going to tell you where the line is and teaching kids stand up, teaching boundaries. There's a lot of, there's a really powerful uh, relationship to fear and society that comes out when I teach kids comedy that I feel like they want, they need and can better prepare both of us for kind of the onslaught of, of what the world is like right now. Wow. Okay. And uh, so right now, physical schools um, are still, or if, Opening up here and there, um, but what have you been teaching uh, uh, online uh, since COVID, or or how 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 have you been teaching yeah. it? So I, I you know since I had t- taught so many of these workshops before COVID, um, I did a couple for corporate workshops during COVID. But really, it's been getting um, all of my footage uh, edited and getting stuff ready, curriculums ready to kind of launch the school. So. You know, there has been a big personal pivot, but also a a career pivot. I thought I'd have more time to launch this school and get these workshops going. Actually, I was intending on doing them in South Africa, where I had started as well. But because of COVID keeping me kind of grounded, I've had to kind of just ruffle my feathers and get things available online, but also just kind of get grounded on what do I actually want to offer later? So I haven't just been, okay, all right, I'm going to start doing this, this, and this. I've, I've really been taking time to think about in my intentional actions. Okay. Well, uh, if you need an Emmy award-winning editor, I just happen to know one who's, you know, available. Really? Yes. I do need an editor. I do. Well, we'll, 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 we'll talk later. Okay, good. About that. I just so happen to know, you know, they're free, they're cheap. So, you know. You're the best. Yeah, you're, a, what a gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, I have, so much footage. And that was the other thing during COVID was teaching myself how to edit is time consuming and also not something I actually want to do, but it seems like it's the thing I'm having to learn how to do. Because as you know, the most important component to anything that you watch is the editor. They tell the story. 
they're the, the seamstress of everything. So I didn't really know that. I thought I was, I mean, you know, the thing that you learn in school and the thing that you learn in life aren't always the same. So it's been an interesting journey. Yeah. Well, if you want to learn how to edit, I'd be more than happy to give you some uh, tips. If you need an editor, I'd be more than happy to uh, throw Thank my support you. between uh, uh, behind Team Mona. Uh, but, <laughs> Thank but like you. I said, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but cool. you have a great team uh, behind you, it seems like, um, with the teaching and the um, shows going on. Um, but I, I, I just want to quickly pivot back to teaching. Um, with the teaching, um, what is the ultimate goal to, as, as someone who teaches, what is the ultimate goal for you to, to see from your students? Do you want them to, how, how do you define success for them? When, they're, when, they, when the light turns on, when they have tapped into their real imagination, not society's rendition of what imagination should look like. So they stop talking about pimps and hoes and drugs and guns, and they start playing with their imagination and bringing new ideas to the forefront. When I see um, young kids, you know, bust out of the norm of the jock or the, or the good girl, all of those social constructs that are starting to solidify in junior high and, and middle school, when they, when they bust out of them and their imagination is so expanded, you can, you can feel it in the room and it radiates to the other students. For example, one of the, one of the classes, I'm sorry, one of the exercises that I teach is the dating game, the old school dating game where there is one person who's looking for a date. You have a, a cheesy host and you have three people uh, typically of the opposite gender who aren't seen and they have to ask questions. And when I play this game with the kids in the beginning, it comes off as your classic gender roles. But once we run out of volunteers, I invite them to push beyond the gender roles. And when they do that, they expand even more. They allow themselves to be, you know, a tough Latino kid that's like the, you know, the gangbanger a presenting type young kid in class can turn himself into a young white girl. I'm like, oh my God, stop without feeling gay or without having others treat him as such. He can allow himself to act. And that isn't something that you'd think would be in a stand-up class or an improv class. But those are the signs that I'm looking for is, are these kids willing to push the boundaries while acknowledging that they're there? Then I feel like, you know, then they, we can have even heavier discussions or heavier conversations around conflict on, on what's going on. It feels like these, these young kids, when they're ready to, to emote uh, in society at that age, society's also telling them they've got to be harder, stronger, sexier, faster than what they actually are. And their innocence is being you know, pulled away way too fast. So what I look for in the classes is for innocence to show up. The innocence of a child at play is pure genius level. And I've seen massive healing there. We had a workshop, one of my, the, my funded projects that's going to be part of my PhD is dealing with suicide within the classroom. And it wasn't a, a student of mine. It was one of their cohort sophomore at Morton High School. And how we processed in a stand-up class how we process a suicide, which was almost poetic because I, I often do this work because so many of my fellow comedians are locked in this, this uh, being the, the clown. They don't know the darkness that many comedians face alone that has led to suicide. I don't know how many comedians have committed suicide 
whether through addiction or through neglect, self-neglect. And these are things that I, 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 these are principles that I hold special to me that I want to change in my relationship to stand-up comedy and comedy in general that I'm allowing myself now to take into the classroom. And I didn't see that that was going to show up, but so beautifully it did. We addressed, we addressed uh, suicide in a very honest, transparent way. And the students felt like, wow, a comedian was able to help me talk about this subject more than the guidance counselor that's, that was trained on suicide prevention. So and it was really powerful. And um, so, it, so this just isn't just for one specific person. You mentioned earlier that how you deal, you work with uh, people with special needs such as uh, yes. uh, autism, et cetera. Um, yeah. And so how has that changed their lives how, uh, you know, have they come up to you and said look because of what you've taught me it's helped me gain confidence or whatever or, or how has that uh helped them and how does how does that uh affect you yeah tremendously so while i don't always get the benefit of feedback because i leave i am you know i'm i'm either an after school activity i'm an extracurricular activity i'm not the student i'm not sorry i'm not the teacher but when I, when I re-engage with the teachers, one of the things I'm finding is that they learn emotional intelligence in ways that they, weren't, they didn't have before. So a young student was, one student was very difficult with the teacher. But after the course, that stu- and after the summer and, the, and the, the, the student went on to another level, that student would come and visit the teacher that had brought in comedy with a level of empathy and kindness. It felt like the teacher was like, I can't believe Kevin just comes in and just spends time with me. He never would have done that. He never would have done that before that comedy class. I was like, wow, that's brilliant. Another student uh, that, I, that I knew way back, and he was one of my first students, I didn't realize just how much domestic issues he was dealing with, that once he had access to stand-up comedy, it broke open his creative, his creative uh, art. Uh, you know, just he just became much more creative expressed. And he ended up joining Juilliard and a variety of other um, I believe he was he's audiovisual and creating video projects and end up going to a, to a very important school. And she, the teacher says it's because of that. He shifted in that class. He went from almost being mute to being this fully self-expressed art artist. And Mona, you have to do with that. I was like, great. So I still, you know, I'm, I'm that, that person that's setting the seeds right now. And I just hope one day, someday those, the kids, whether they're here, the ones that I taught here in the U S or I taught in South Africa, you know, I just bless, I bless them love and success. I don't know where they're going to go, but I know that I know one thing is true. When you teach a kid or a young person how to feel comfortable presenting alone in front of a microphone, in front of their peers, and they know that they're comfortable and prepared to do it. Nobody can ever mess with their mind ever. They'll always be prepared because remember whatever field we're in, whether it, we're going to be an athlete and have to do a free throw shot or that that final goal kick or we're going to be the head of Fortune 500 company, we're going to have to present our, our skill set in front of our peers alone, often terrifyingly. And when I get kids getting comfortable with, with just that concept, I know that they're, that they're going to be okay. I, I, I'm excited to see, you know, because I'm only 42, so who knows where these kids are right now, you know, in the next 10 or 15 years, how they might be circling back. And my hope is, is by establishing my own school, I'm going to be able to have more, a, more, a deeper relationship with those kids where they might end up teaching classes for me in the future. And I'm able to keep, keep an eye on the system so that I, I can actually 
perfect the model even better because it it started off as a one-off thing in 2010 and now it's 2021 and and this feels like it's kind of like my soul's purpose is to get this up and running and my dream is to have it as a mandatory curriculum of the Chicago uh, public school system and then eventually globally having it be a significant course that that schools or countries will want their students to have because then they'll have a healthy relationship to their self-expression and freedom you know speaking public speaking rather Okay. Um, to touch on what you just said, um, obviously, uh, a lot of these students uh, that you're talking to and teaching um, have experienced uh, tragedy or heartache and just want to get uh, their stuff out, you know, their whatever yeah. energy and everything. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we all have um, that type of thing, too. Um, as it's just natural as human beings for Mona, what, what has caused, and this is getting really, really deep. And I, and no, it, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but I mean, obviously the pain that you've experienced, I, I'm guessing is sort of made you want to drive to do this and, and to challenge uh, your students, because if you can overcome it, um, they can too. Is that a fair, fair, uh, oh, yeah. assessment? Oh yeah. 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 I was a classic. I was your class clown. Okay. That's why this program is called class clown. Class clown is what a class clown is somebody who acts out because they're not getting the attention they need. So they have to act out. And I was a, the chubby kid in school. I was the funny kid. And at home, I, I, nobody could hear or see me. I was, I was neglected. I was a kind of, the kind of thing, you know, as people say, you can be alone in a room full of people. That was basically my upbringing. It was so chaotic. No one could even see me and no one cared that I was there. My parents were always at work. And so at school, I had to be also smart and get good grades. But when I could, I was a smart ass. If I could be sarcastic and make people laugh as the fat kid, then I'm like, all right, cool. You know, like then I'm cool. Well, you know, the, the, the deeper underpinning is, hold on, let's, let's take some time. What is, what is Mona trying to say? What does Mona need? That's probably why I ended up creating these workshops is because when I'm watching these kids, I can pick up all the microaggression. I can pick up all these micro habits that are going on. I have, I have deeper questions for the teacher. What's the difference between my honors kids when I teach them and then the kids that are barely graduating? What's the difference in their in their ability to perform, to speak, to speak, their intellect level. And you learn way more about, um, about youth and education from that angle. And that's because I needed it. It's kind of like I'm, I'm providing the thing that I so badly wish I had had. And it really was, it sparked because when you read or understand um, Dave Chappelle's documentary or his history is the guy knew he wanted to be a stand-up comedian at like 13. He told his parents, and what did his parents do? First off, the parents listened to him. That's huge. That's huge, first and foremost. Second, they, uh, his mother and his grandmother took him to a comedy club. Okay, they actually took the kid into an environment where the kid didn't necessarily belong. And then they supported him figuring it out. He learned how to do it at a very young age. I often thought, what if, what if I had had that? And since I didn't have that, what, if, what would it be like if I could offer that for the whole world? For the whole world, not what if the whole world was a Dave Chappelle or at least had access to that level of supportive self-expression? Could I provide that? And I'm seeing that it, it isn't always just the comedian 
that wants a stage, but also there are kids who like to support that. So I often teach not it's the overall production of the event that I'm teaching too. It's not just the talking part. It's the, the, all right, well, you don't want to perform because you're nervous. Cool. Can you, do you want to be a producer? Do you want to make sure that we uh, have great art design for the flyers? Cause we're going to need that. Does anybody want to set up the chairs? And then everyone starts to come together. And what I'm secretly teaching is leadership, leadership. And in the end of the day, leadership, you can't have a Trump show up or a leader that no one wants or respects if it's really, you know, embedded in society to always be a contribution to leadership, not just somebody else will take care of it. It has nothing to do with me. Because I often say, like, nobody can be a comedian if the mic isn't turned on and isn't plugged in and the light isn't on well, some, and somebody in the seat. And so that's why comedy is such an intimate art form. It, it kind of doesn't exist unless it's reception and refraction in other. So I can imagine why a lot of comics who haven't done TV work have issues with Zoom. I've done TV work. So I understand the d- dynamic of having a solid set and being able to perform it irrelevant of the reaction that you're going to get. You just have to be able to deliver it, deliver your best thoughts, waiting and knowing you're going to receive that laugh. So, you know, I teach overall leadership in these courses. You know, it all depends on, you know, why we picked up the mic. Yeah. And that's the thing. I'm like, all right, if I teach other comics or when I do open mics and like, Mona, can you guide? I'm like, all right, first off, why are you here? Because it, remember, what we do and what, what we do is we face a fear unlike anything else. And we face our neuroses unlike anything else because nobody can convince us that the thing that we said and the way the laugh was responding is anything other than how we are measuring it. No matter how much, you know, so like what kind of, why are you even being a comic? Do you know? Yeah, well, I mean, like for me, uh, yeah, I, I've told people uh, after I, I, I stopped doing killer comedy that I'm treating more stand-up comedy for me as a hobby, not as a profession. And so, you know, I'll I'll have people, oh, well, uh, when are you going to do more stage work? And it's like, you know, I just do it for fun. If you know, I have something to say, I'll write, you know, make a mental note, but you know, can and uh, you know. I'll, Hit an open mic and just—it's more or less for a hobby for me now. So I mean, that's why it, you know my career isn't as awesome as yours. But you like it as a—you like it as a hobby. Does it? Does it give you a release? Yeah, I mean, look when you when you hear the audience um, laugh at what you know you have to say and the way you frame it and everything. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it gives off endorphins, right? It gives off a sense of uh, accomplishment. You know, just for that brief second, you want somebody to pay attention to you. And I mean, it, it could be argued that, you know, stand up comics are basically attention whores. You know, they're like, look at me, look at me. And, you know, but for the most part, um, you know, I just go up there just to uh, you know, have fun. Uh, and that's why, I mean, I really miss doing killer comedy because it was more or less giving other people a platform. Just like what you're, we were. yeah. Just, just like what you're, you're doing now. You're, you're giving your students uh, the tools. You're teaching. You're giving them the tools and showing them how to use it properly and how they use it. You know that that that's up to them. Yes, yes. Are you are you going to be doing any shows out there? Um, I did one show out in Phoenix a couple of years ago. Killer Comedy One Night Stand. 
Um, nice. And it was to help raise money for Tabitha's Heart, uh, which was a non which is a non for profit organization to help children of uh, India uh, to provide really? to provide um, you know things like clothing, and teaching supplies, and school supplies, um, food, shelter, etc. So I mean, it, it's a great organization. Um, but yeah, I mean, we raised was it four hundred dollars? Uh, That's cool. It was a packed show for a place that held 50 people. So, I mean, it, it, it was sort of uh, also proven to myself that, you know, I still got it. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, if you ever, I mean, if you ever do want, you don't want to co-produce anything. Do you, do you ever, you like getting back into co-production? Do you want to do that? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, um, look, I did killer. I started killer comedy in what, 2011. So it's now 2021. I'd like to maybe towards the end of the year uh, do a at least another killer comedy one night stand in Chicago, uh, maybe at Sylvie's again. I don't know, um, but you know, it just it'd be nice to to go and and give back to the to the comics, not in, in the comics who have helped me out as well as you know any up and coming uh, comics. You know, I've always tried to, as a booker, always tried to give people time. Um, and a lot of people didn't like that because the way I, I did it. Um, but I mean, if you knew me, um, I was always able to look the other way and just give you stage time. Um, there were people who abused that, um, my generosity, but I mean, this is a business while at the same time you want to give back to business. And I mean, it's a, slippery slope you know but for the most part i always wanted to give back and uh and i still want to give back i, w- I, w- I want to see what talent is still out there and, and, you know after the you know, six years uh, i've been away wow yeah well that's the cool thing about this art form is that you can never not do it you can do it until you're george burns and you're a thousand years old my my temper isn't one that has been created out of, um, I don't know, I, I, my journey around my, my temper is why stand-up is the best outlet because it allows me to turn frustration into funny. And I believe so many people have so much pent-up rage and anger that they're expressing in overeating or over-sexing or over this or over that. Whatever vice we're hiding our temper in, I like stand-up because it's a cool outlet. So long as I... So long as I get the chemistry right, that I'm not attacking, that I'm like, look at this guy. He's over here rolling up to me right, right when I come to work and he wants to talk shit while he's on his way to the stripper. Listen, honey, I'm gonna, it's going to be a cheaper ride with me. I'm going to just make fun of your mom. I'm not going to show you my titties making you think of your mom. Like I could go off like that. That is comedy turning frustration into something funny. That to me is why I love stand-up. Because it gives Mona, who has a temper and who's been dealt, like, there are times I have dealt with some horrific things. And if it wasn't for stand-up, I don't, I don't know where I'd be. And Yeah, I mean, it, that's like a, everyone else in comedy. Like, like they don't know where else to, to do their outlet. And, and just to tie it back, I think that's why you feel that you have to give back in, in teaching the, these kids, as you meant, were yeah. mentioned earlier. And yeah. I mean, granted, you're not going to go off on these kids. Like, no, the kids are the best. Like, no. like you would have with that wheelchair 
candidate. Dingbat. We'll just call him a dingbat. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the nicest thing to, to call him, I guess. But right. I mean, <laughs> I, but, but as soon as I, as soon as that happened, I'm like, Mona's got the talent. She, she's going to, her rocket's going to go up. And sure enough, years later, you know, you're performing on Comedy Central Dubai and, and all over the, all over the, all over the world. Yeah. You are internationally known. Yes. That's the other component about coming back to Chicago is I'm a Chicago kid, but just like most Chicago artists that get, that go all over the world when they come home and they're, nobody gives a crap. They're like, yeah, yeah. We don't care that you did this, you know, huge comedy club in London. They don't, they they could, they don't give two shit. So like, get out of my parking spot, kid. That is, that's why I like to stay at home. It gives me, Chicago is the middle part of the country. So you end up learning a lot about yourself and your temper. And, but at the same time, it, it can feel very lonely in the comedy scene because I almost have to forgive them for they don't know how awesome I am. I mean, I am. I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but what I've had to experience, I've experienced in countries or parts of the world that my fellow colleagues who think they're amazing headlining certain clubs, they don't know these countries exist. Like that's the cool part. I know certain things and then having to fit sometimes in a small little box, like when I come home to Chicago, it's humbling. Let's just say that. It's really humbling. Uh, uh, there, you know, there's so much I, I wanted to talk to you more about. Um, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. But I wanted, did want to ask you about this. Um, you've experienced a lot over the years. Um, if you were to write a autobiography about... You know, it, well, obviously about yourself. It's an autobiography. Uh-huh. Um, what would you name it? Ravioli under the stairs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I guess that pretty much explains. Uh, yeah, explain, explains Actually, it all. Well, like the, it could be, it could be like Chef Boyardee, Chef Boyardee under the bed. I, I was three hundred pounds. I had a food addiction. My, my relationship to my vice is a type of vice. You can't live without, you got to eat. But how I was, my relationship to food and, and all of that and comedy and self-expression and, you know, inter-ethnic stuff. Like there's just so much about my life that you, if you read it, you're like, dude, this is like the divine comedy right here. This woman's life. That, what kind of title would you give it? I give it one of my, my, my silliest memories of my grandmother making a yet another Palestinian dish with covered in eggplant and I don't like eggplant because she used it all the time. And that's what ends up happening with poor people. We overuse certain vegetables because that's all we have. Right. Well, we were in the suburbs of Chicago. She needed to keep using eggplant. So I was like, screw it. At 12, I went and grabbed a, a big old can, the big family size of Chef Boyardee. I snuck a can opener and I ate, I opened it and ate it under my bed because I just wanted my ownness there. It was the most disgusting meal ever, but it was so vivid in my reclaiming me. So however that special would come out, whatever book that is, that might be it. Otherwise, I'll come up with a better title. No, I mean, I totally understand. Look, I was, you know, a couple of years ago, I was 200 pounds and I was overweight. And, uh, and now I, I, two years later, I'm, you know, I lost the weight. I'm, you know, yeah. 150. I, I'm, you know, it, it, you just have to get out of your despair or whatever um yeah. i shouldn't say despair but you have to challenge yourself and either as a comic and challenge yourself to be telling the, 
in your mind, the world's funniest joke that makes your the studio audience inside your head like yeah. or yeah. or you know um, whatever. You know, you just have to commit yourself to be the best the best person uh, you can be. And so, yes. I mean, your your story, you know, your life story is uh, inspirational because I, you know, I, like I said, I've known you for years and years and you know if there was ever to be a book about you I, without a shadow of a doubt it would be uh you would read it? I, I would read it and be a bestseller all right you're my doppelganger bro you're my doppelganger okay so i'm holding you accountable to that so when i get a draft or at least an outline i'm going to send it to you okay well okay, here's good. the thing I, I just wouldn't just you know Read it. I buy all the copies and, and you're so all right. But I'm, you know what? Well, I am. I'm. A, I am in a book. I did publish one of my. Uh, and it's a big deal. I pub, I'm publishing uh, one of my workshops in a overcoming mediocrity book, and I had the race to do it because the University of Chicago was trying to steal my intellectual property. That's a whole separate conversation on another podcast of yours called, you know, how Mona went head to head with the University of Chicago. We can talk about that later. <laughs> I w- I, hey, I would love to have you come back and we can just shoot the shit some more. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. And I wish your podcast so much fun and, and excitement. I think, you know, the way how professional you are and what you bring, what you bring is like you're the comic whisperer. So... I see you, brother. Thank you. And however I can support you and maybe put you in line with any of the other comics, let me do that. Absolutely. No, I appreciate it. All right. Um, stay, stay on for a little bit. I'm going to talk to the audience uh, to thank them for listening to Mona. And yeah, don't forget okay. to check out all of her uh, wonderful stuff uh, from her classes. Uh, where, where can they check out your classes, Mona? You can check me out at monacomedy.com. Any of my infos there, you can uh, reach out to me if you want to hear any more details about classes offered around you at mona at monacomedy.com. And all my social media handles are all there on that website, monacomedy.com. So if you want to stalk her, I mean, follow her. Um, <laughs> You're silly. On, on, well, I thought we've already established that. Um, <laughs> um, so if you want to follow her, do all that. Uh, thank you once again, Mona. And that has been the Eric J. Richards podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. But until then, I encourage you to stay healthy, stay safe, and try to stay sane in this crazy world. Once again, thank you. I'm Eric J. Richards, and you guys have a good one.